0: Good morning and happy Mother's Day to all the moms and grandmothers out there. We are living in unusual times. We find ourselves in a situation that most of us have never experienced before in our lifetime. The Toronto Maple Leafs have a legitimate shot at the Stanley Cup this year. As startling as it might be to see the Leafs lift Lord Stanley, these last 14 months have provided other images and situations we hardly imagine possible, particularly here in Canada. On April 7th, the government of Alberta physically barred and continues to bar the building of Grace Life Church near Edmonton, wrapping the facility in fencing and police for failing to follow COVID-related health regulations. And this came after uh, Pastor James Coates was arrested for holding in-person Sunday services beyond the government's mandated limits and was jailed for 35 days for refusing to obey bail conditions that required him not to preach. This has sparked national and international headlines and further agitated others to protest. And sadly, Grace Life is not the only such incident as governments across Canada have moved against other pastors and churches and businesses that have refused to comply with provincial health orders. For many, the images of a chained up church in Canada has brought confusion and concern. For others, anger and frustration. And still, others see this as a good and necessary act of government authority, including many in the religious community. This morning, my goal is to bring some light to a subject that often produces more heat: the role and authority of the state. So, let us pray. Heavenly Father, our request is simple this morning. We ask that you would guide us to your truth, Lord. This this uh, topic is often shrouded uh, in in, our, in emotion and bias and hyperbole. Lord, I simply ask that as we go through your word, that you would guide us, uh, in fact, uh, to your truth about this matter. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, criticism or disobedience of any authority, but political authority in particular, must be done carefully and thoughtfully. Political authority, or simply the state, is established by God himself. Paul instructs the believers in Rome that the authorities that exist have been instituted by God, and it is our Christian responsibility to submit to the governing authority. And as a result of this divine backing, Paul warns that the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God, and those, that res- those who resist will incur judgment. Later on, Paul goes on to describe political authority as God's servant, using the Greek word diakonos. It is the same term that is used. Uh, to, uh, that is translated as deacon later when scripture addresses positions of a church authority and responsibility. So the state is God's servant, his deacon. Now these government-imposed restrictions have caused many to lash out uh, in physical acts of defiance or angry social media posts. And such emotion is, is, is understandable. Nevertheless, Paul's words should caution us against rash or impulsive criticism or opposition we are not merely opposing a king or a premier or a parliament we may be speaking against a servant of god if there is to be any resistance uh, to authority it, is, it better be preceded by our own obedience to paul's instruction that petitions prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone for kings and all those who are in authority The state is a divinely established authority. The state is also a delegated authority. Jesus declared as as he commissioned his disciples that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Paul affirms this in Romans 13. There is no authority except from God. That the state is called God's servant shows that it acts under the supreme authority of God. We find, in Dan, or we find Daniel in the Old Testament declaring that it is God who sovereignly changes the times. He removes kings and establishes kings. And then a couple of chapters later, as if to prove his point, God dramatically humbles King Nebuchadnezzar until the, until the uh, disgraced king realizes that the Most High is ruler over human, uh, over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. Functioning under this delegated authority comes with a couple impl- implications for how state authority should be understood. First, the state, author- or the state has no intrinsic power, it is a servant, and any authority a servant has, um, has derives from and is grounded in the authority of the master. By itself, the title of president or prime minister or king confers not one ounce of power over another. It is, through the master's, it is through the master's authority that the servant acts. This leads to the second implication. The state is the, ma- is the servant of one master. There is the, the popular idea that politicians are elected to serve the people, that my MLA works for me. And similarly, the elected often speak of having a mandate as if their election permitted them to govern according to their favorite policy proposals. And it is true that the governing authority is established for the good of the governed, according to Romans 13.4. But it functions for the good of the governed in the role of God's servant. Those in authority are not there to serve the whims of the citizens or fulfill their own promised policies. They are there to serve God and His mandate, they are his servants. It's worth making an additional observation at this point. Power and control has had a natural attraction for all people since the time of Eden. And the amount of power that, it, that has been bestowed upon the position of the modern elected official is enormous. And we'll get to the, the biblical limits of the state in a moment. But the allure of acquiring and then maintaining that political power is just as tempting as the original fruit in the garden was. And so the result is that many, if not most, politicians govern based upon how much power they they can acquire or power they can maintain or how much power they can take away from the opposition. As Christians, we need to be looking for encouraging and electing politicians who recognize their role as God's servant. Biblical policy positions are not easy to run on successfully. There are so few politicians who are willing to take uh, take that stand, and they deserve our support. And so the state is divinely established. The state is also a delegated authority, but the state is also a limited authority. If you recently filled out your taxes, the idea of a limited government would seem to be the truly impossible dream. Forget the likelihood of the Leafs winning the Stanley Cup, It seems hockey will be played on the sun before the size of the state decreases. If you've ever operated a business, you know how deep and how wide is the government's love for regulation. If you want a glimpse into the paperwork required for the church to operate as a charity, just ask Heather. Even our own little town here has a 21-page community standards bylaw regulating how tall your weeds are allowed to be where and to what extent you are permitted to work on your car, and even places, limits on where you can yell and scream. The issue is not whether the content of any particular law is good or not. The question is what is the role of the state? They are God's servant operating under his authority. So what has he authorized them to do? Again, Romans 13 gives us the main task for the, for the state. So Paul notes that the state has two authorized duties. First, the state is to commend and promote what is good. Good conduct by the citizens should be recognized and praised by the state. As a servant of God, the state is not at liberty to be the standard of good and evil, but to act in accordance with the master's standard. State law is is measured against God's law. So when a citizen lives a godly life, He should have no fear of the state. Rather, he should receive the praise of the state. As its second authorized function, the state has the authority to punish and restrain evil. As a servant and instrument of God's wrath, it it does not carry the sword for nothing. The weapon in view is not simply for defensive actions, as if merely to oppose or restrain uh, evildoers is also to issue punishment, up to and including the death penalty, according to Genesis 9:6. Paul tells believers at the end of chapter 12 to leave room for God's wrath and vengeance. At least in part, the state is given authority to be God's instrument of vengeance against the evildoer. Having been granted this sword of justice, the state immediately assumes a position of significant authority and responsibility. And since the idea of justice fills every aspect of life, it is reasonable to consider the limitations on the exercise of this justice. First, the state's authority to maintain justice through the promotion of good and the punishment of evil is not absolute. The state is a servant of God in a position, under author- or in a position of authority that is placed under God's ultimate authority. As a servant, they are to act only in accordance with the commands or parameters given by the Master. They are not a replacement of the Master or free to go beyond the Master's authority. The State is to judge good and evil as per the Master's standard. God has given them the sword to carry out His wrath, not their own. Further, since God is to be the moral standard for the State, the State should not allow public opinion To determine what is good or evil. uh, Morality is not a popularity contest. Though the government may be elected by the voter, the voter does not determine what is moral or immoral. The state in maintaining justice is limited to God's moral standard, the sole authority to whom they serve and who are they and to whom they are accountable. Second, the state, or second the, the, the state authority ought not to be a burden on its citizens who do what is right. It is the evildoer, the one who disobeys God's commands, that should feel the weight of the state and its sword. The involvement of the state in the lives of the godly ought to be minimal. This is exactly what we should be praying for. If we return to Paul's letter to Timothy, he writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The abundance and intrusion of government regulations into daily lives of citizens appears inconsonant with biblical government. The focus of government laws should be on punishing criminal behavior or negligence, not creating a burdensome bureaucracy. If you think the commands found in the Mosaic law are extensive, and there's 613 of them, pause to consider how many laws and regulations are on the books in Canada. I couldn't find a number, but I suspect it's just a little bit more than 613. A third way that the state's authority is limited is through other spheres of authority. The state is not the only authority that God has established. The individual, the family, business, and the church all have unique authority and responsibilities that each has a right and duty to fulfill. As such, these other spheres of authorities right, rightly limit the state's own authority. For example, while it is wrong to, to reject God's offer of salvation, the state has no authority to punish that decision. That is a matter of individual authority parents are given responsibility over their children and a state that interferes with that divine mandate is acting outside its own authority additionally from the very beginning god put man to work the lord god it says in genesis two fifteen, took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it and so just as we need to be careful and thoughtful about how we resist the state the state must be careful whenever they impose upon an individual's divinely given right and responsibility to work. For the church, God has established the roles of pastors, elders, and deacons to guide and shepherd the church, not premiers and presidents. Just as the state's authority should be respected as delegated authority from God, likewise the authority and responsibilities of these other spheres should be respected. God has commanded particular actions to be done by particular spheres of authority, and no other authority should seek to deny or restrict those actions. Where the the state does seem uniquely capable uh, is in addressing extreme breakdowns in the proper functioning of these other spheres. For example, if a parent physically abuses his child, or one person murders another, Though these occur within the sphere of a family or individuals, the state would seem to be authorized to step in and punish the the criminal evildoers. We began by recalling the, the, the difficult images of a church disobeying the state, leading to the state imprisoning a pastor and fencing off their church building. Now, understanding the state as having been divinely established Uh, while also being delegated and limited in scope, how are we to understand this current situation? While leaving uh, the pandemic aside for a moment, we can see that the state has no justification uh, to be interfering in the actions of a faithful church. The church does not function because the state allows it. This church functions because God has authorized it. The right to gather, the right to corporate worship, to baptize and to participate in the lord's supper the right to disciple discipline and evangelize these are all pre-political god-given rights and responsibilities of the church body and a church that is doing these things that is doing what god has authorized it to do should be according to romans 13 commended by the state now does the current health crisis change this dynamic To draw out the the principle in play, we can rephrase this question. What are the necessary conditions for the state to interfere with the church? Admittedly, defining such conditions is far from clear-cut. But based on the passages we have studied, the state would at least have to show that the church is guilty of criminal activity or negligence. Recall that the state is not intended to enforce meddlesome regulations has been given much more significant responsibilities. Consider also that I'm not making a legal case or basing this argument necessarily on current law when I refer to criminal activity or negligence. I am using God's law as a standard. Criminal activity can be uh, defined as actions that are in violation of God's law, most notably the Ten Commandments, and that are not able to be addressed within the other spheres of authority. The most obvious examples of criminal activity would would refer to actions that pose direct threats or violations to life or property. Criminal negligence, quoting from a Christian philosopher, applies to anyone who does anything or or omits to doing anything that it is his duty to do and shows wanton or reckless disregard for the lives or safety of other persons in the process. The Old Testament provides... Uh, A couple examples in its case law that are worth mentioning in in this regard. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, uh, the Israelites are instructed that if you build a house, you must construct a guardrail around your roof. And this was at a time when flat roofs uh, were places of gathering. You are to construct a guardrail around your roof to avoid being culpable in the event someone should fall from it. And then in Exodus 21, Moses warns ox owners that if the ox has the habit of goring and its owner has been warned and he did not take the necessary precautions, then it, and then it killed a man or a woman, the ox must be stoned and the man must be put to death. Such, such descriptions are not intended to justify extensive building or, or cultural regulations. They are to teach that criminal punishment will follow negligence that leads to injury or death. So if one wishes to justify the state wielding the sword of justice against the church, one will have to show that some form of criminal failure has taken place. A similar similar argument uh, can be used regarding state intrusion into into other spheres of authority, such as the family or businesses. However, if the state begins to use that sword outside of the authority given to it by God, it is the responsibility of the church, the pillar and foundation of truth, to resist and speak up against such evil. The gospel message is not just about sharing the message of Christ's redemption to individuals, but it is the proclamation of Christ's rule over all creation, making disciples of all nations as Christ commissioned. And this is all the more important when we consider the incredible power of the state. It is not surprising that we should see the need for such a high threshold before the state's involvement is warranted or justified. For all that the good, for all the good that a godly government can or can do, it takes very little for a corrupt or careless state to do incredible damage to a society. Allow me to quote an extended section from a lecture uh, given by a Christian apologist and philosopher and fellow Canadian, Dr. Joe Boot, about the dangers of a state that steps outside its delegated and limited authority. He says, if we violate sphere sovereignty, and this is the idea that we discussed earlier, that God has instituted multiple spheres of authority or sovereignty. If we violate sphere sovereignty, bring, and bring, the, bring the properly coercive character of state law and power into all the organs of societal life, the character of human society changes. If if civil government uh, runs and funds education, you get radical secularism and the imposition of LGBT curriculum and gay-straight alliances in schools, like it or not. If you bring the state power into the sphere of of the family, you get the redefinition of marriage, bans on discipline, and the seizure of our children if we don't give them affirmative therapy hormone blockers, and surgery for gender gender dysphoria. If you bring the state into the the sphere of welfare provision and charity, you cultivate a radical dependency on state welfare, promote entitlement, and sponsor state redistribution in the form of uh, socialism and progressive taxation, along with the steady collapse of real charity. If you bring the state into the heart of the church, you will get a politicized church that is unwilling or unable to speak the truth of the gospel to to political authorities and frequently religious persecution. If you bring the state into the heart of the economy, with an ever-expanding state bureaucracy as the largest employer, you get socialism, a managed, planned economy, price-fixing, state interventionism, powerful unions, and the collapse of free markets close to the heart of the current crisis. If you bring the state into the heart of of medicine, you get coercive tax state-funded abortion, state-funded euthanasia, state-funded sex change surgery, the denial of the conscious rights of doctors, and the mass lockdown of society in the name of public health, health and saving the institutions of socialized medicine. If you bring the civil government into the, into the heart of media through state-funded broadcasting, you will get state media and a monopoly of the narrative, an attack on the free press, and the attempt to control the dissemination of approved news. All of this is inevitable when the state moves beyond its sphere of competency and authority into other, into other sovereign spheres because the state, by its very nature, is a coercive institution. And to illustrate Dr. Boot's point, Dr. Bonnie Henry, the chief medical officer for British Columbia, made these comments back in November after prohibiting churches from in person gatherings, which remains the case today in BC. She said, quote, Faith is not a building. It is not about Sunday mornings, but it's about every day and how we connect with each other and how we support each other. It's not about rights. Far from medical advice, This is an attempt by the state to redefine the nature of the church. Whether you believe the state is justified or not in barring churches from corporate worship, it does not have the right to downplay the seriousness of its actions or to tell Christians what their faith is about. The church is, as Pastor Dave preached not long ago, the ecclesia, the gathered, the called out. The church has one supreme authority, Jesus Christ, who is the same authority that establishes, delegates, limits, and who is master over the state. Now, I know I've gone on a bit longer than we usually do, and we've covered a lot of ground, but let me conclude with this caution to the church, to the gathered. These many months, 14 now and counting, uh, of of the state restricting corporate worship can be a dangerous time in the life of a church. Within the technology that allows us to meet virtually, there lies the temptation to believe that this virtual church is a suitable replacement for the physical church, the in-person church. After all, we get to sing the same songs, we hear the same sermon, even talk or chat with one another, all with the added benefit of not having to leave our couch or get dressed up or try to get the kids in the car on time. We can be easily persuaded by the likes of Dr. Henry and many others, including other Christians, who forward the narrative that faith is not a building. It's not about Sunday mornings. As with all good lies, there is a shred of truth in such a belief. The church is not a building, or the church body is not a building. The church does exist beyond Sunday mornings. This is true. It is true in the same way that a family is not the house it lives in. But without the house the well-being and function of that family is severely damaged. The barring of in-person gathering is no small matter. It is in the habit of gathering in person that uh, that we encourage one, spurring one another on to love and good works. It is together that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in our hearts to the Lord. It is as adopted brothers and sisters through Christ, that we meet around the Lord's table and celebrate new family members through baptism. Jesus Christ did not appear, or did not just appear human, as if he was some sort of human avatar virtually visiting earth. He became truly human, living among us, suffering with us, dying for us. And when he returns, it will not be in some spiritual form, He will return to gather all his children to him physically in the new heaven and the new earth and it is in the gathering of the church today that we see a glimpse of that future heaven and so let us not neglect our meeting together but encourage one another especially now that we see the day of his returning drawing near let us pray heavenly father we pray for those in authority uh, it, is, it is not an easy task. It is a, a position of incredible responsibility. And we pray that you would give them the wisdom uh, and guidance to wield that sword um, as you have given them or given them authority to do. We pray that you would guard them against the temptation that such power inherently has, that they would that they would seek to control this power, uh, for themselves uh, instead of wielding it uh, as you, the master, have commanded them. Lord, we also pray for the church that if the, such a state were to become careless or corrupt in wielding this sword, this this uh, power that you've given them, that the church would remain strong, that it would act as the the, the pillar and the foundation of truth as you established it. That it would remain faithful to the authority that and, and commands that you have given it. Even in the midst of incredible pressure, uh, Lord, I pray for the the, the fortitude um, um, uh, of each church and each believer during these times. And finally, Lord, we ask that we would seek to desire or desire to be again one body, gathered together um, in person. Lord, that we would not be tempted. To, to see uh, our, our TV screens, our computer screens, as, 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 as uh, adequate to what uh, church is intended to be as you designed it. Lord, we, we thank you indeed for these tools that we can use, but Lord, it is not how it is meant to be. And so, Lord, we, we, we mourn that we cannot meet together, but Lord, I pray that we would desire all the more uh, to, to, to once again be together in person, your church. Uh, your light in this world. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.